You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The evening's reading will come from Acts chapter 8, verse 4 through 25. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed people and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, even Simon himself believed and were being baptized. He continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down from came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. And pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they have when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of Samaritans. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Skylar, for reading that for us. Uh, We're here, guys. We made it to 2021. Um, I keep several folders on my computer for Christchurch stuff by year. So I had to make a few new 2021 folders this week on my computer. We, We planted this church in 2016. So now this was the sixth calendar year folder on my computer. It looks wild on my computer screen. 2016, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. Amazing. Uh, well, we took the month of December for the book of Acts to, from the book of Acts to consider the certain hope of the first and second coming of Jesus during our Advent season. And we were blessed last week by Chase Jacobs' sermon and following Jesus both in life and in death from John 12. But uh, Acts 8 is actually a really great place to come back to the book of Acts here in the new year. It is a, it's a new beginning. It's a new movement in the story. It's, a, it's like season two after we saw the dark last episode in the season one finale. 
in chapter 7, at the beginning of chapter 8. We saw Stephen preach Christ, and then he was, cond- he was condemning the Jewish leaders for acting just like their fathers did and refusing to listen, to listen to God. He made them really mad in saying that people have lived in God's presence outside of the land of Israel all the time. They don't have to be near the temple or in this place. And that the, ten- the, the time of the temple as the hot spot of God's presence has now come and gone. Stephen, being full of the spirit, he was preaching courageously and accurately, but it gets dark and season one ends with the leadership dragging Stephen out and stoning him. And as like the ominous and sad music comes up as they're stoning him, the sad music then continues as like the camera pans to a new character named Saul, who is holding the garments of those who are doing the stoning as he looks on as in approval. And then with that same sad music, It then probably goes into like a a montage or something, a sad and tragic, terrifying montage of Saul and his men going house to house, dragging out men and women, putting them in prison. These early Christians now aren't just being mocked and made fun of like they were in chapter two. They aren't just being put in prison for public and defiant preaching like Peter and John were in chapters four and five. But now even just being associated with, with this movement to be associated with Jesus of Nazareth becomes a dangerous business. And season one ends the the season closes. It looks pretty bleak. And so now in this first episode of season two, maybe the director would have like a flashback back to chapter four, where the believers there in chapter four, they were praying for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That is just as what happened with Jesus when Herod and Pilate and the people rose up against him, or just as Joseph once said to his brothers in Genesis, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Now Saul and his goons are ravaging the church. It is horrible. It is wicked. It is evil. It is sin. And yet God will mean it for good. So tonight we're going to look at the rest of chapter eight here in two halves. We're going to think about the word of power, the gospel of God's word of power, the word of power scattered. And then even though the gospel is scattered and spread, secondly, we'll think through the word of power manipulated. So first of all, let's think of the word of power scattered. Have you ever used a weed eater? Uh, and perhaps you weren't being careful, perhaps you were a little reckless, uh, you, you set it down, uh, set the, the, the bottom down in dirt or gravel. Like what happens when you do that? The dirt or the rocks get thrown out in all directions, even if, if you're not being careful, even right into your shins. And it's horribly painful. This is exactly what happens in verse four. Verse four, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And in fact, they're, they're being thrown out like a weed eater. In fact, this word scattered carries a, a double meaning as well, because it is the same Greek word that gets used in the Hebrew Old Testament for to sow or to plant. In Jeremiah 31, God says that he will scatter his people. The northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribes of Judah, he will scatter them. Or the ESV translates Jeremiah 31, 27 to say, I will sow the house of Israel. Scatter or sow. I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And eventually I will watch over them as they plant and grow. So in verse four, now those who were scattered 
went about preaching the word. They're scattered and being sown about. Now, this might cause us to ask if we were reading the book of Acts for the very first time, like, wait, is this this what Jesus was saying way back in chapter one, when Jesus told his apostles that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth? So we've already seen the gospel has already taken root. It's planted and it's growing in Jerusalem and Judea. Is it now being scattered or sown to to Samaria and to the ends of the earth? Well, then we then read verse five. So Philip went down to the city of Samaria. (laughs) Yep. Uh, So it is now moving from Jerusalem to to Judea and now into Samaria. So just in case you need a Samaria refresher, Samaritans are the descendants of the northern tribes of Israel who were then conquered by the military power, the military world power of Assyria. And it was Assyria's invading strategy after you have conquered or beaten an army to just have a bunch of Assyrians stick around and intermarry with this newly conquered people. So after a couple of generations, the identity and the customs of the people will then be diluted and these conquered people will actually be less dangerous. These are the Samaritans. They are the descendants of Israel and of Assyria. They still worship the God of Abraham, but they have built their own temple in Samaria. They only accept the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Old Testament. And the Jews of the South hate the Samaritans. They think of them as like genetically corrupted false worshipers which is why Jesus's parable of the Good Samaritan is so provocative. It is the enemies of God that are actually in this story acting as a good neighbor. And so just like Jesus did with many Samaritans in his own preaching ministry, Philip also goes to preach the kingdom of Christ to the Samaritans. That is that the gospel is for all peoples, no matter their ancestral background, no matter their ethnic identities or present religious beliefs or practices. Like Chase showed us last week in John chapter 12, and Jesus is being lifted up on the cross that he will draw all people to himself, all kinds of people, including Samaritans, to himself as their king. That Jesus is not just the king of Israel, but he is the king of the entire world, of the entire universe. And he is now drawing these people unto himself. And so Philip is continuing the preaching ministry of Jesus, but he is also continuing the healing ministry of Jesus. He is casting out unclean spirits, healing the paralyzed and the lame. Jesus himself has arrived in Samaria here, and he is creating a new people. And the result in verse 8 is that there was much joy in the city amongst these new people. The word of power is being scattered and planted. It's creating new life. And not just among those who were physically disabled or socially marginalized, cut to a new scene. The camera now focuses on Gandalf. I mean, Simon. Simon is a magician. Verse 9 tells us that he practiced magic in the city and he amazed the people. Now, there's two options. We have two options for the kind of magic Simon is doing. The first option is that he's like an illusionist. He's like a David Copperfield or a pen and teller type guy. When he was a boy, he got a box of magic tricks off of Amazon. And every morning he spends a few hours on YouTube and then a few more in front of the mirror, perfecting his like sleight of hand. Maybe like David Copperfield made the Statue of Liberty disappear in 1983 with huge sheets and rotating platforms. Have I got a podcast for you on that? It's amazing. Uh, But maybe, maybe Simon made the Samaritan Temple disappear with like the final countdown going on behind him. Possibly he's this kind of illusionist. 
Maybe likely he's this kind of illusionist. But the second option is that he's actually like Pharaoh's magicians. That this is legit magic in which Simon is both connected to and he is manipulating the unseen spiritual world. Now, this alternative feels less likely to us just because we live in an age of disenchantment in which there is a more likely explanation for everything. Like science did this, time and chance did that, or even cynically as we watch YouTube videos, like that's not real. Like an editor did that. That's just a green screen, man. Like nothing is as it seems. There's a, there's a better explanation for everything. And so even as Christians, we can assume that when we see something that appears supernatural, that it is one, either the, the Holy Spirit, it is real spiritual power, or on the other hand, it's just fake. It's not real. It's not real spiritual power. But that's just not the worldview of the Bible in which real spiritual powers exist and operate, deceiving and leading people into darkness. So I don't know if on the one hand, Simon is like Job Bluth, or on the other hand, he is Merlin. But either way, the people, they think he is great. And I'm not going to go into the usage of the language that this sentence at the end of verse 10 uh, uses, especially the language from outside the Bible that we know of, especially amongst Samaritan literature that we have found. But when the people, when the Samaritans say in verse 10, this man, Simon, is the power of God that is called, and then the ESV puts in quote, quotation marks, called great They are at the very least saying that he is a great prophet. And perhaps they are actually saying that this guy, Simon, is the angel of the Lord from the Old Testament. He is like an earthly incarnation of Yahweh himself. So it doesn't seem like he's just merely like pulling an ace out of his sleeve or like making a dove disappear or something. He's a powerful dude. At the very least, he is a socially powerful dude. The, very, the, the city is amazed by him. They call him great. And so when he is seeing men and women hear Philip's preaching and then respond in their lives with baptism, verse 13 says, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Now, the rest of the chapter might suggest that he didn't actually believe. He didn't actually hear the gospel proclamation of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and respond with true repentance of being confronted by the resurrected king of heaven and earth, and now identifying his own life with Jesus by faith, and then receiving the love of God by his grace, that his life was fundamentally changed from death to life. And many commentators say just that, that he actually in all of this had ulterior motives, as we'll see perhaps later on in the chapter, that he was an imposter of the faith. But Luke says in verse 13, even Simon himself believed. He was baptized. He continued with Philip. And so Luke is telling us that this socially powerful and important dude has at the very least made a profession of faith in Christ. And he is now wanting to follow him as now he begins to follow this this previously unknown Greek Jew, Philip from Jerusalem. Samaritans and Jews don't really interact in this kind of way, but even this socially powerful Samaritan is now putting himself behind as he follows Philip. So the word of power is scattered, it's planted. Jew and Samaritan, men and women, the least and the greatest, the physically powerless to the socially powerful are all hearing and responding to this word of power as it goes out, as it heals, as it is planted and brings new life. But Luke then gives us a little breadcrumb of where this thing is headed at the end of verse 13. 
kind of like a, an asymptomatic virus. The old diseases of power structures and of social importance are still very much alive and well within the body of Christ. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, we read in verse 13, he, Simon, was amazed. There's nothing wrong with him being amazed until we find out where this thing is headed. Now, secondly, after we've seen the word of power scattered, now the word of power manipulated, or we might say trying to be manipulated. But real quick, before we get back to Simon, let's just spend a moment on verses 14 through 16. There in verses 14 through 16, the apostles, they send Peter and John up to Samaria to see what's happening. To, to hear what's happening, to see, is the gospel really gone out to the Samaritans? But also to pray for the Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit in the same way that the Jewish church had received the Spirit in Acts 2. Apparently this had not happened yet. Now, why the, why the delay? Why didn't the Holy Spirit come and indwell the Samaritans immediately? They responded in faith, they were baptized, and then the Spirit did not come. And in fact, there are some who have based an entire theology of salvation and then a later receiving of the Spirit on what, has, what happens here in Acts 8. That you can become a Christian, that you can have true conversion to Christ from death to life, but then the Spirit coming is a later event in life. And that without the Spirit coming, without that later moment, this almost we may say a second baptism or something, that you can't have a full assurance of faith, that you can't have uh, the full depth of the Christian life until that event. So you just have to sit and wait and eagerly pray for the Spirit to come. But I think that's a wrong application of these events and a wrong understanding of the way that these first few months and years of the early church in Acts are very often descriptive, but they are not prescriptive. That is, they are an, an account or a retelling of what happened and not necessarily of what still happens or what should happen. In the book of Acts, the, the, the page is turning on a new era of the universe, on a new era of salvation history, that the gospel is now explicit in going out to all people from Jerusalem rather than implicit in inviting all people to come to Jerusalem. Luke doesn't make clear why the delay of the Spirit happens with the Samaritans, but it appears to be because of the, the page-turning newness of all of this, that in other places in Acts, people repent, they believe, and they receive the Spirit. It's like one event. While in some other places, there is delay. There's a time of delay in Acts chapters 1 and 2 in Jerusalem, remember? Jesus' ascension, he's saying there's still going to be time. you got to go back to Jerusalem and wait. 40 days, the Spirit doesn't come. And there's a time of delay here in Samaria. There's a short delay in chapter 9 when Saul sees uh, Christ on the road. And then it isn't till later, till Ananias comes and he, uh, the Spirit comes to Paul then when the scales fall from his eyes. There's a period of delay in his transition. Now, I can point you to other resources uh, later this week or tonight if you have more questions about this. But the overwhelming theology of new birth in the New Testament is that of faith and then of immediate reception of the Spirit. That, of, that these movements in Acts seem to be the beginning of new eras of epics, of epochs. Right? Not to mention that if we made what happened with the Samaritans prescriptive for us, we'd also need the apostles to come and to pray for us to receive the Spirit. And so the point of all of this is that Peter and John are now here. The apostles, Jesus, 
His, his personal deputies of his budding and blossoming church are here in Samaria to both oversee and to validate what's going on. That the gospel has indeed moved from Jerusalem to Judea, now to Samaria, is moving out. But here's another helpful point for us. That the expanding work of the kingdom was now way out in front of the work of the apostles. The planting of the gospel did not depend on 12 men. It did not depend on apostles or pastors. In fact, as we've already mentioned a few times, other than Peter and Paul, regular old Christians, faithful men and women filled with the Spirit, acting as bold witnesses for Christ, they really are the ones who come to be uh, to, to, to the forefront of the story. It's in Acts 6 through 8. It's Stephen and Philip, two guys who are faithfully serving bread to widows that proclaim the person and work of Jesus. They don't sit around waiting on the apostles or even need to get the permission of the apostles to proclaim the gospel. They understand themselves to be sent by Jesus, to be the seed spreaders of the gospel. Philip was likely content to keep serving and cultivating the gospel amongst those in need in Jerusalem. But then once everyone was scattered from Jerusalem, Philip was now happy to be the one doing some of the scattering. And yet, Peter and John are in Samaria, and Simon sees what happens when the Spirit comes. When Peter and John, in this new movement of salvation history, uh, now in prayer, the Spirit comes to the Samaritans, and now a whole new page of history is opened. And we don't know what Simon sees. Perhaps there's wind and fire like there was in Acts chapter 2. Maybe, again, people of different languages in Samaria are communicating to one another in languages that they've never learned. Whatever it is, Simon sees it and he wants it. He offers money to Peter and John and he says, give me this power also. Now he's had power before, but now he wants an even greater spiritual power. Now this is a well-known story. I have read this story of Simon, the magician, countless times in my life. There, there's even a word called simony that comes from this, this story. Simony is when you buy your way into religious power or religious authority. Simony has been particularly dangerous in church history when there are like hierarchical structures in which you can like throw your money or your social power away or around to like work your way up the religious ladder. But this story has never really cut me to the heart like it has this week. I think my, my whole life, when I've read this story, when I've read Acts chapter 8, I've subconsciously thought to myself, well, I'm not really into magic. I, I don't fancy myself much of a wizard. Uh, so this story doesn't really carry much weight in my life. It doesn't have much application. Or maybe on the other hand, in, in, in the church structures that I've been part of, I haven't really... Uh, struggled with wanting to buy my way into authority. And maybe that's just because I've never had the kind of money uh, to, to really throw around and get attention with. But Jen Wilkin really got me this week in observing how hardly any conversion stories in Acts and really in the rest of the New Testament are just really nice and tidy. She says, we all have old magic we don't want to let go of. Framed in that way, this is a story for all of us. We all have old magic, just like Simon, that we don't want to let go of. That the old self has been dealt a mortal wound at the cross of Christ. That of the flesh of our sin has been dealt a mortal wound at the cross of Christ for those who have been united to him in his death. Like Chase helped us think through last week. Uh, the old man is dying. 
is dead at the cross, but it is not dead yet. It is mortally wounded, but not dead yet. And the old assumptions, the old structures, the old desires and appetites of the old man still cry out and they want to be fed. And so we might say with Acts chapter eight, instead of how might a magician approach this situation? We might say, well, how would a CEO approach the situation? If the CEO of a major business or company in Samaria or the president of the bank was in Samaria and Peter and John came and maybe they had become Christians too and they wanted to help grow the church. They even had good motives in wanting to advance the gospel and to help grow the church. How might they approach this new situation? The CEO or the the bank president might expect that the way of growth is that of good marketing that of building and protecting your image and your brand, maybe that of bullying and crushing the opposition. But this is not the way of the cross. Maybe the old magic is using your magnetic and your likable personality to gain and to leverage power. Maybe the old magic is using your smarts and your brain to keep accumulating power. Maybe it's physical attraction or humor or the cultivating of the right image for yourself on social media, that uh, an amazingly awesome life or an counterintuitive counterintuitive move for power, actually in your social media cultivated presence, that of exhibiting a life where everything is going wrong. And now I need this kind of attention to leverage some sort of twisted power. But the way of the cross is not about accumulating or leveraging or gaining power. The way of the cross is that of the first shall be last and the last shall be first. That of less of me and more of Christ. That of less about accumulating and leveraging and protecting the ways in which I can grow in attention and acclaim. And more about how Jesus can grow in attention and acclaim. I mean, just compare the work of Philip. In the beginning of the chapter, who comes into Samaria, he's healing and he's drawing crowds with his preaching and then comparing him to Simon. Like Simon's been a Christian for like five minutes, but he assumes that since the world thinks that he's something, that he has skills and that he's had success outside the church, that the the world calls him great. That That should translate to some kind of success inside the church as well, that the church should call him great. Philip, though, what's he been up to in the life of the church before this scene? Well, he's been faithfully serving widows and probably thanklessly, but it doesn't matter to him because it's not about him. His service of the church and his life in the church is about others, is about Jesus, is about the church thriving, not about power for himself or acclaim for himself. The only qualification for elders that Paul gives in both 1 Timothy 3 or in Titus 1 that has anything to do with skills or giftings is that a elder must be able to teach. Even that, I think, really means that uh, this elder can handle the word correctly, not necessarily that he's like a charismatic preacher or something. So all of the other qualifications for being an elder in the church are about character, not about skills. They're about character, about evidence of the Spirit's work in holiness, about the Spirit's work in causing this potential elder to be that of magnifying Christ, not himself. In his book, God the Evangelist, 
Giant Packer says this. He says, our obsession with the Holy Spirit's power is really an obsession with results. He goes on, at its basis, basis level, it is an admission that we will solicit converts on almost any terms and that gospel preaching can legitimately be carried on by almost anyone, regardless of how he or she lives. He says the Holy Spirit's work of power is powerful precisely because it is a work of truth and of holiness. It is power unleashed in conviction about sin, righteousness, and judgment. It is a power exhibited in the new life of the believer. It is never power that is naked and raw. Power unrelated to Christ. Power unrelated to the demands and character of God. Power that is promiscuous and aimless. Power of this kind bears more resemblance to that of Satan than that of the Holy Spirit. And this is the kind of naked and raw power that Simon is after. But the power of the Holy Spirit is always about turning the spotlight onto Christ. Turning the spotlight off of us and onto Christ. On Christ's substitutionary death. On his empty tomb. On his filled and glorious throne. On King Jesus, not onto King Simon. On King Jesus, not onto King Nathan or King anyone else. Not King self, but King Christ. And so Peter sees that Simon has the spotlight still squarely uh, pointed onto himself, and he lets him have it. Peter says in verse 20, he says to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And maybe no one has ever spoken like this to Simon the Great. He is Gandalf of Samaria, and no one speaks to him in this way. And here, a marginalized fisherman from the south comes at him with powerful words of rebuke. Now, many will hear these sharp words from Peter and assume that Simon actually hasn't come to faith in Christ, right? He is just in it for the power. So, like Peter says, Simon has no part, no lot in the matter. That he is in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. He is enslaved in sin still. And so he has actually not come to Christ, and that's possible. But Jesus also rebuked Peter like this on many occasions, saying in John 13 that if Peter wouldn't let Jesus wash his feet, that he too, Peter, he would have no share with him. The same language that Peter just used, no part, no lot in the matter. And if you think, think that what Peter says about Simon, that the bond of iniquity, if you think that's bad, well, Jesus once called Peter Satan. <laughs> so either way, whether or not Simon is an actual believer or not in this story, the application for us is still the same. That words of warning for the very first time or for the thousandth time, words of warning come for repentance. And words of warning received rightly Come for repentance, for joy and assurance. Words of warning come not for your lack of assurance, but for your full assurance. Or as I recently read, repentance isn't what we do to receive God's grace. Repentance is what we're able to do because of God's grace. It's not something that we have to do, much as something that we get to do. 
that repentance is about our joy, about our assurance, about our being free to live the life that God has actually created us for, not the life of old bondage, of old self. Now, it's actually not clear that Simon actually responds in this moment with the kind of humble repentance of joy that God's grace enables. He asks Peter to pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Simon, he, he like passes the buck of repentance on to others. Maybe like Peter, the great apostle, can do this spiritual work on, me, on my behalf. Maybe through him, I can actually know God. Maybe in his knowing Christ, I can be restored to Christ. But Peter is no priest. Peter is not a priest. No apostle, no pastor is. There is but one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, and we can all know him equally. Because of Christ's work of mediation on our behalf in his cross and in his resurrection, we can know God through him. Simon must know Jesus for himself, and Simon must come to grow in killing off the old magic himself. Peter cannot do it for him. It doesn't happen overnight, but by God's grace, our union with Christ and by the power of the Spirit, the old magic dies, but by knowing Christ for ourselves, not letting others do the work of spiritual growth on our behalf, writing in on their coattails, but in knowing Christ himself and then writing in on Jesus's coattails into the presence of God the Father. And so might 2021 be a year that we might all individually and corporately know Jesus more, that all of us individually and corporately experience his grace for ourselves, that we might all grow in individual and corporate repentance and holiness all by growing in our knowledge of him, in our knowing God. Now, you might have noticed that we haven't really plugged a church-wide Bible reading plan this year. Uh, reading through the Bible in a year should be always be a, a somewhat regular practice for us. And if you've never read the whole Bible or if you don't have a plan for reading the Bible this year, you totally should. We've promoted the Read Scripture plan and the Read Scripture app before. The app with its accompanying videos is so helpful and kind of getting your bearings as you start to read a new book of the Bible. But, but reading through the entire Bible, while unbelievably helpful in understanding and reminding yourself of the whole story of redemption and the scope of Christ's kingdom, it can be a bit like drinking from a, from a fire hydrant. It comes so fast that it can sometimes be hard to read slowly, to re read reflectively, to read meditatively. So maybe this year, maybe you might consider reading a gospel account or reading a few New Testament letters or reading the Psalms or the Proverbs over and over and over again. Maybe buying a devotional commentary to like supplement as you read. Maybe, maybe journal, maybe pray as you're able to then more slowly burrow down more deeply in God's word. Either way, whether you're reading the whole Bible three to five chapters or something a day, or reading three to five verses a day. Either way, as we enter into 2021, let's grab hold of the handles of the spotlight and turn it towards our King, the risen Lord Jesus, that we might not read the Bible, that we might not pray and gather together again in person. And then as we are able to take hold of more, uh, more, 
means of grace in the corporate life and the individual life of our walk with Christ, that we aren't doing these things to make Jesus happier with us, but that we might know him. We might know our risen Lord together and together then pray for more of him and more of him and more of him and more of him as we walk in following him being discipled into his death, and then walking victoriously into his life. So let's pray for more of that together now. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word to us. We are so thankful to your faithfulness to your promises. Might we together, individually and corporately as a church, put more confident faith in these promises, that the Lord Jesus has risen, that he has ascended, and that he is reigning now, over the universe and over our small lives, help this reality transform our lives, transform our desires. Might you, by the power of the Spirit, be putting the old magic to death, the old desires for power and for acclaim. Might we decrease and might Jesus increase. Might it be so in 2021, we pray. We pray for all of these things in the powerful and the saving name of Christ. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.